Okay, so I'm, I'm Paul, and God has commissioned me to be a messenger of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing with my brother Sosthenes, and I'm writing to all of you in Corinth, everybody everywhere who is holy in Christ Jesus and has been set apart by him and called to be holy people with him, along with everybody everywhere who says Jesus Christ is their Lord, uh, both his, his Lord and ours, actually. And I want to send grace to you. I want to send peace to you. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ both send grace and peace. And I'm firstly thankful for you. I love you. I'm so grateful that you are as you are because the grace of God has been given to you in Jesus Christ and that means that you are in every single way you're rich in everything you say and everything you know even as the witness of Christ was made obvious even among you you're not lacking a single gift as you stand in this period of time waiting for the day when Jesus himself will be revealed as Lord and King and in the meantime he will sustain you to ensure and guarantee that at the end you stand blameless in front of the judgment seat of God when Jesus Christ comes. God is a faithful God and that and he's the one who called you into union with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. In the meantime though I have to appeal to you please please do not let there be divisions and factions among you and in fact I'm asking more than that I'm saying please come to the same mind and agreement and unity together. Make sure you judge the same way and think the same way because I've heard Chloe's people have told me this that some of you there's, there's squabbling and quarrelling and you've actually got batches of you saying I am a Paul person and another batch saying I'm an Apollos person and other people I'm a Cephas person with Peter and others saying oh well I follow Christ. Like what are you doing? Is Jesus Christ divided? Or was would I somehow crucified for you? It's ridiculous to think that way. Were you sometimes baptised into my name or something? I'm just so grateful to God. I didn't baptise any of you apart from Crispus and Gaius so that nobody might say, oh, well, I was baptised into Paul. Actually, you know what? I did also baptise Stephanus' house. So now I come to think of it. I, to be honest, I don't know if I baptised anybody else. That's not the point. The point is Christ didn't send me to baptise. He sent me to preach the good news and not with human fancy wise words, but with the cross. And because the cross of Christ is where the power comes from. And I didn't want it to be robbed of its power, so that's all I did. Because the word of the cross is stupid. If you're dying, it does sound stupid. Everybody hears it. If you're not in Christ already, it sounds dumb. But to those who are being saved, it's where the power comes from, from God. It comes from the scripture. I'm going to take down all the cleverness of the clever, and I'm going to end up unraveling all the wise judgments of the wise. Where is the wise one? Where's the person who writes for a living? Where's the person who debates and talks for a living? God has made them all look really stupid. Because in the the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through their own cleverness. And so what God has done is in his, in his wisdom, which is true wisdom, he has shamed them by putting a foolish gospel out there to be preached in order to save the people who believe. Jews are all on about miracles. That's all they can talk about. And Greeks, all on about wisdom. That's all they can talk about. And we don't do either of those things. We preach the crucified Messiah, which turns out to be a stumbling block to the Jews and stupidity to Gentiles. But to the ones who are called Jewish or Gentile, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's stupidity is wiser than the cleverest thing a human being's ever done. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strongest per- person who's ever lived. Look at, your, look at yourselves. You're like this too. Just consider what it was like to be you. Not many of you were clever in a worldly way. Not many of you had power or nobility. But God chose the dum-dums to shame the wise. And God chose the weak and fragile to shame the strong. He chose the little things to bring to nothing the things that are big. So that no human being might ever be able to boast in the presence of God. And it's because of him that you have become in Christ Jesus who became to... He's the reason you have wisdom. He's the one who's become wisdom and right 
righteousness and holiness and redemption so that anybody who boasts could only ever boast in the Lord Jesus. And when I came to you, I, that's what I said. I didn't come to you preaching, witnessing to God with highfalutin speech or wise, clever words. I thought to myself, do you know what? With these guys, I am only going to know and only even talk about Christ crucified. And I came to you weekly, and I was, it, was, it was sometimes a difficult time. And I was actually in awe of both of God and sometimes, sometimes trembling about what my message was. And my speech and my message were not in these plausible words that the world would believe. They simply put the power of the Spirit of God on display so that your faith might not rest and persuasive people but in God's power actually now among mature people we do of course speak wisdom but it's not this worldly wisdom it's not the kind of thing that the rulers of the age who were on their way out even came to think of they don't think that way it's actually a secret hidden wisdom that the world wouldn't recognize which God had said ages back was going to be true for our glory the rulers of the world didn't know that they didn't understand it at all if they had they wouldn't have crucified him of course But as it's written, what nobody saw coming, what no mind could even have dreamt of, nor the heart of man conjured up, this is what God has put on display for those who love him. And that's the kind of thing that God's revealed to us through his spirit. The spirit knows everything, even the very depths of God. Actually, how else do you know the thoughts of a person unless you are the spirit of that person? It's the same with the spirit of God. And we've received not the worldly spirit, but the divine spirit, so that we might understand the things that God, in his grace, has freely given to us to know. And we say it not in human wisdom, but in spiritual wisdom, interpreting spiritual truths to spiritual people. The natural person doesn't understand it. Of course he doesn't. They're spiritually discerned. He can't make any head head nor tail of them. But the spiritual person judges everything and himself gets judged by nobody else. Who has understood the mind of the Lord Jesus? Or we have the mind of Christ. But I couldn't talk to you like that. This is what was so sad. I, I couldn't and can't even now talk to you as spiritual people. I have to talk to you as fleshly people. As babies in Christ. I fed you with breast milk not solid food because you weren't ready and even now you're still not you're still behaving in a fleshly way as soon as somebody is jealous or quarreling among you as soon as somebody says oh i follow paul another follow apollos you are behaving in fleshly ways so i can't talk to you as the spiritual people you should be think about it what is apollos what's paul just simply servants of God, labourers that God gave a particular field of responsibility to do. So I'm the planter, and I go in and I sow the seed, and then Apollos comes in and he waters it. We're just servants, though. God is the one who brings the growth. So the person who plants is nothing, and the person who waters is nothing. It's only God who should get the credit. Actually, Apollos and I are united in the same goal, to plant and to water. But actually, at the end, all of us are going to get wages according to what we've done. We are simply fellow workers in God's field, and you are the field. And in another sense, you're actually like a building, I suppose. You're a building that, according to God's grace, we worked hard on and I laid a foundation. Actually, nobody can lay any other foundation than one, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what I did. I came in, I preached Christ, that's the foundation. And lots of other people now have started building on it. And they better be careful. Because if you build on the foundation of Christ with different kinds of building materials, you will find out one day what kind of building materials you used and whether they lasted. And some of you will find that you're building with wood, and hay even, and straw that is very insubstantial, and others might build with gold and silver and precious things that last. And when you do those things, whatever leadership role you have in the church, when you do those kinds of things, you will find that at the day when Christ returns, all of that work will be shown up for what it is. 
And if the work you have done survives, you'll receive a great reward. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But if what you do goes up in flames, you will see everything that you've been labouring for just disappear in an instant. And you yourself, yes, you will be saved, but only just as if you were like a person fleeing a burning building. And I want you to know that you are God's temple. This is why I take you so seriously. You are God's temple. God, by his spirit, lives in you. And if you destroy that, God destroys you. You are holy and God's holy temple. So please don't deceive yourselves. Don't let yourself get led astray on this. If you think you're smart in the ways of this world, become a fool. That's how you really find true wisdom. Because the wisdom of the world is stupidity with God. It actually comes throughout scripture, doesn't it? He catches wise people out all the time. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are foolishness. So please don't boast in people. Everything, you actually already have everything. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, life, the world, death, present, future. Everything is yours. And you're Christ's. And Christ is God's. And that's how somebody should see me and Apollos, all of us actually, as apostles, as simply servants of Christ. Don't big us up to make us faction leaders. Servants of Christ, stewards of mysteries of God. And it's obviously found, it's required. You have to. If you are a servant, you better make sure that you're faithful with it. With me, I don't find that that faithfulness gets assessed by you. I don't really think that's a big deal. If you think highly or lowly of me, I don't care that much. Actually, it's the Lord who judges me. and I don't really judge, judge myself. I don't think I've done, done that much wrong with you guys, but even if I didn't, that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. The only judge really that counts is the Lord. And one day he will come, and I, until then, I don't want you to pronounce any judgment before the time comes, because when he does come, everybody's motives will be shown for what they are, and on the basis of that, everyone will get a commendation or not for what they've done. And I've lived that way, and applied all of those things to myself, and Apollos has too, and we've both worked that way so that you might see in us not to go beyond what the scripture says, that I keep telling you about humility and boasting. And I, Who sees anything different in you, actually? What do you have that you didn't receive? Everything you have comes from God's gracious hand. So if you've just received it, what are you boasting for as if you didn't? Already, you guys, I love Corinthians, you're just like, we are so wise. I stand in awe of your glorious wisdom and your amazing insights and your wealth and your kingship, your rulership. Oh, can I be a king with you? Can I sit on the throne alongside you? I think God's put us at the end of the line, like the scum of the earth, the stuff that you wipe off your shoe in the street, the white stuff that accumulates around the corners of your mouth when you're thirsty. We are just the scum of the world. We've become so stupid, but you are so clever. And we've become so weak, you're so strong. We're so dishonored and shamed, you are so so honourable. Well done. Well done. Even today, we're hungry and we're thirsty and we have none of the signs of being honoured by God, buffeted, without clothes, without homes, working the whole time really hard. And even when people are attacking us, we say nice things back. And even when people slander us, we don't meet face to face and stand them up. Instead, we just, we say, I'll urge you to change your mind. But I don't end up facing people down like that. We have become the refuse of all things. I don't say these, I'm really, I know I might get carried away sometimes, but I'm not saying these things to shame you. I'm saying these things to correct you as my children. You have lots of guides. That's fine. People come in, leaders, other apostles, they say their peace. That's fine. You have lots of guides, lots of guardians, but you've only got one father. And that was me, because I'm the person who first came to you and preached the gospel. I'm the one who laid that foundation that is Christ. And so I want you to treat me like a father. And actually, that's the reason I sent Timothy too, because I wanted him to remind you of the way that I live and all of the things that I taught you. Some people, in the meantime, 
are pretty arrogant. They're pretty up themselves. They're not sure I'm coming. And they're acting as if I won't. And when I do come, well, let's find out whether those people have really got the power that I've been talking about or whether it's just talk and hot air. The kingdom of God isn't a matter of talk and hot air. It's a matter of power. And I really hope that you would rather I came along in a spirit of gentleness rather than with a big stick to bash you guys around the head. It's actually said, to be honest, I did a double take when I heard it, but uh, but I I heard a rumour that there is a kind of immorality among you that even pagan people feel slightly embarrassed about admitting has happened amongst you. And that is that somebody in the church is sleeping with their stepmother. And you guys are proud of it. What are you doing? Surely this person should have been removed from you as soon as you heard about it. And I know I'm not there physically. Spiritually I am, and I've already decided the way that you guys should treat this person, and that is that when you are together in the same spirit as I have, you are to put this man out of the church and send him out into the world where Satan reigns in order that the spiritual in him and in you might be saved, and the fleshly in him and in you might get destroyed for the day of the Lord. You, I can't believe you're boasting about it. That is not a good thing to do. Don't you understand that a little bit of mould spreads throughout an entire loaf? And you are not meant to be a mouldy loaf. You're a Passover people you are an unleavened people so get rid of that bit of mold that would corrupt everything else and throw it out and then let's celebrate the Passover together as you truly are unleavened and clean from infection rather than tainted by the presence of this individual I did tell you of course in my previous letter I know you read it I did tell you you mustn't associate with fornicators and sexually immoral people I've got to clarify, I, I always didn't mean in the world. How on earth could you live in Corinth if you wouldn't say, oh, walk down the street, no, I can't talk to you because you're a fornicator. You can't live like that, but in the church you need to. In the church, if you've got anybody who carries the name of a brother and is living like with any of those things actually, sexual morality, greed, idol worship, swearing and attacking and slandering people, being drunk all the time, ripping people off, any of those kinds of things, you shouldn't even be eating with them. You should make sure they're not in your community as if there wasn't a problem. My job though isn't to judge the world. That's God's job. It's the people inside the church that I'm called to do, like it says in Deuteronomy. Make sure you get rid of the evil person from among you. Similarly, if one of you is angry with one of your brothers, do you dare go and say, let's go and let the unrighteous people decide this one for us, shall we? Let's go to the courts. Don't you, you must know by now that the saints, that God's holy ones, are going to be the ones who judge the world. You're going to stand there judging angels and the past and the present and the future. And if that's going to happen, then how on earth can you think you're not smart enough to try trivial cases between brothers? So if you do have cases like that, then why are you putting them before people who don't have a role in the church? It's crazy. I'm saying that to shame you. Is it really the case that in the wise, excellent, superior knowledge people of Corinth, there is no one who is actually qualified to discern between the cases between brothers? And instead of doing that, you're just taking them all to the unbelievers, letting them decide for you. I think even having a lawsuit in the church is like as if you've already lost. Why why wouldn't you rather just allow yourself to be ripped off than go to unbelievers and say, please sort out this squabble between Christians? You you yourselves are being wrongdoers and unrighteous. And I want you to know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom. I don't want you to be tricked about this. The world will try and trick you into thinking that these things are not true, but they are. Neither sexually immoral people, nor idol worshippers, nor people who have run off with somebody else's husband or wife, nor men who have sex with other men, nor people who steal, nor people who are greedy, nor people who are drunk or slander, nor people who rip people off, none of them are going to inherit the kingdom. And you used to be like that. 
But by God's grace, he washed you and he justified you. He declared you righteous and he sanctified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I know you say it all the time. Yeah, well, everything's lawful. Look, I'm in Christ. Everything's lawful. Yes, okay. It might well be, but not everything's helpful. Oh, well, everything's lawful. Yeah, but I won't be enslaved by anything. For me. Well, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Yeah, but God is going to destroy one and the other. The body isn't meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. And God has raised Jesus and will raise us too. And you know, your bodies are united with Christ somehow. So am I going to take something that's united with Christ and then united to a prostitute as well? So Jesus and the prostitute get connected? Like, of course I'm not going to do those things. Unless you don't realise that when you have sex with someone, you become one flesh with them. The one who becomes one with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So run away as fast as you can from sexual morality. You see it coming? Leg it! It's not to be part of your lives. You mustn't allow it in because every other kind of sin you might commit is really only a sin against others. But in your, if you're sexually sinful, you're sinning against your own body as well. Unless you've forgotten that your body is a temple of God. It's where the living God lives. It's like the tabernacle. It's like Eden. It's like David's temple. And if you end up sinning against that, you are blaspheming. You are sacrilegious. So glorify God in your body because you are not your own anymore. You've been bought at a price. It's probably time I after that very long introduction, then I come to some of the things you wrote to me about. Anyway, um, you said, I, I know, one of the lines that caught my attention, you said, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman simply for the purpose of physical release. And I would say, but because it is so tempting to commit sexual immorality, and I think we've already established that there's a fair bit of that floating around, I think it, people should, get, should be able to get married, and they should be able to have their own husbands and wives. And when they do, the husband should make sure he does have sex with his wife, and the wife should have sex with her husband. Because actually, the body isn't just the husband's all the wives, they both have each authority over each other's bodies um, and I would, so I would urge you, don't end up abstaining from sex for a lengthy period of time unless maybe for a short time so that you can pray um, other than that, you've got to make sure you come back together again otherwise you'll simply find that you're tempted to go off and run one off with someone else and that's terrible I'm saying this admittedly to concede something rather than to command it I'm not telling you to get married, I'm saying you can get married I personally think people would be happier if they were like me but people do have different gifts, I know now, if I'm speaking to people who aren't married, I would uh, uh, aren't married, and to widows uh, who've already lost a partner, I'd say remain single. It's good for you. But if you can't exercise self-control, getting married is fine. You should you should go for that. It's better to get married than it is to spend your whole life continually being sexually tempted. If that's an option for you, if you're married, my advice actually is not even my advice. It's what the Lord Himself said: wives shouldn't separate from husbands, and if they do, they should stay unmarried or be reconciled. Husbands shouldn't divorce their wives. But to people who aren't married to believers, to people who may be married to unbelievers, Jesus didn't say anything about this, but I'll tell you what I think. I think that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she says, all right, let's stay together, he shouldn't divorce her. If a woman's got a husband in the same situation, shouldn't divorce him. Because actually you may well find that the unbeliever in the marriage ends up being drawn into God's holy community as a result of this and ends up may well be saved. The same is true of your kids actually. You end up living as a Christian family, you're a believer, you may be able to bring your kids up to know the Lord. How do you know? You might even save your husband. You might even save your wife. So don't abandon them at this point. But if they leave, then let them go. That's okay. You're not in slavery to maintain that marriage anymore. You're free. God has called you to peace. But in the meantime, you don't know. You might save them. Just make sure that you all lead the life that God has given you and God has called you to. 
That's what I say everywhere I go, actually. If you, if you got saved when you were already circumcised, stay circumcised. If you got saved when you weren't, don't try and get circumcised. Just remain as you were. Circumcision doesn't really mean very much. It doesn't count for anything. Be circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. What really matters is keeping what God wants us to do. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't worry about it. If you get your freedom, wonderful, do it. But you don't have to get free. If you were free, if you think about it, somebody who's a slave now is free with regard to the Lord. Somebody who's a free man now is actually a slave of Christ. So don't worry. You have been bought with a price. So don't become slaves of men. Whatever condition you were in when you got converted, stay in that. Now about people who are betrothed, and if I like it, long-term engagement kind of context, I don't have any advice from the Lord. He didn't speak to this issue, but I'm going to say what I think, and I think my judgment's reasonably good on this as well. I think that in light of the current crisis that's affecting your city, you should probably stay as you are. If you're married, don't seek to be free. If you're, if you're unmarried, don't seek to get married. If you do marry, you're not sinning. And if a betrothed person marries, she's not sinning. But if, I, I just think people who get married have a lot of difficulties in this life that unmarried people like me don't have. And I'd say this, the time's actually very short. It's not going to be long before Christ returns. So I, su- I suggest that you end up living with a right, a rightly aligned priorities and not living as if your wife was the most important thing in your life or your, the way you're feeling, right? whether it's really sad or whether it's really happy or whether your, your business dealings. Just think all of those things as if they almost weren't there and instead just put your focus on the Lord because the world as it is now is disappearing. It's not going to be here for much longer. I want you to be free from worry. An unmarried person is concerned with the things of God but the married person is concerned not just about that, but also about what his wife might need and even what his kids might need. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is similarly free to please the Lord in body and spirit, but she's married. Her husband's preferences cloud the issue sometimes and become difficult for her. So I'm just saying this for your benefit. I'm not trying to bind you up and say you must do this, but I'm just trying to make sure that you do see good order and sensible living uh, in, in so that you're able to focus on the Lord with undivided devotion. If you think you're not behaving properly, you're engaged and you think this is a bit inappropriate now and you're really, uh, you just desperately want to get married and you find that your sexual drive is ca- getting you carried away, then you go for that. That's okay. You're not sinning to get married. But if you're firmly resolved, actually I don't want to get married, I'm okay, I think we better stay single in this context, you're fine as well, you'll do well. Actually I would say the person who gets married in a betrothal context does really well. But the person who stays single, even better. And obviously a wife is bound to that relationship with her husband as long as he's alive, but if he dies, then she's free to get married to anybody else, just so long as he's a believer. In my judgment, I think she'll probably be happier if she stays like she is, and I think I've got the spirit as well. Now you also asked, interesting, you also asked about idle food. And when you did, you came at this with the sort of, all of us, we're all knowledgeable people, and we know that you know, we, we know that, of course, this knowledge that you have sometimes puffs up and inflates the ego, doesn't it? And love, when it's truly at work, actually builds people up. If anybody thinks they're, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a know it, I know it all, I'm already there, then you don't know yet what you should know. But if anybody loves God, then they are known by God, and that's what matters. So I would say, when it comes to idol food, we know that, as you rightly say, an idol doesn't even exist. And there's only one God, that's true. And although there may be many gods, lords, heaven and earth, the gods of the pantheon, the lords of the mystery cults, for us, none of that matters. There's one God, the Father, for whom, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We know that. But not everybody does. And some, because they used to be in a sort of idolatrous context before they were believers, some of them, when they eat idol food, they're eating it as if the idol is really there. And that means that their conscience gets stained and dirtied by the fact that they've done it. 
Food actually doesn't make any odds at all in itself. We don't get worse off if we don't eat, we don't get better off if we do. But I really urge you, don't let the right you have to eat whatever you like become an obstacle to somebody else so that they end up being destroyed in faith. Because if somebody who's weak in that knowledge, they don't know it, they see you reclining in an idol's temple, leaning back, laughing away, drinking, eating all this idolatrous food in a temple dining room, they may think, oh, idolatry doesn't really matter. Christians can worship idols too. And they may then go and participate themselves in a similar feast and they may find that their conscience is destroyed and their faith dies because of you don't let your freedom become a basis for somebody else to lose their salvation it's crazy by your knowledge that person could be destroyed and if you do that you're sinning against christ so if food makes somebody else stumble to the point that their faith is in danger i won't even eat anything because i don't want them to stumble let me i, I use myself as an example because this is true for me. i have this all the time i'm free right you know that. I'm free. I'm an apostle. I've seen the risen Lord Jesus. You are my you're the proof that I'm an apostle, actually. If you, if, even if other people think, oh, he's not really an apostle. I certainly am in your case. You know, because you're the reason that my apostleship is commendable. Because you're there as a church, built on my foundation. And so my argument would be, if you had a look at my life, I've got rights. I do. Just like you have with eating food. I've got rights to eat and drink. I've got rights to take up my wife along with me as a believer if I got married. I would have, like the other apostles do that, the Lord's brothers do, James does, Jude does. You know those things. Is it just make, I presume you don't think it's only Barnabas and I that have to work for a living. Right? Who is, soldiers don't do that. They, when they work, they end up being paid. And people who plant vineyards eat the fruit. And people who tend flocks drink some of the milk. So that all happens. I'm not saying these things off, off the top of my head either. They're in the, in the law. It's written in the law, don't muzzle oxes if they're training grain. You, you know, he's not just talking about oxen or cows. He's talking about us. And it's written for our sake because, yes, when you're plowing a field, you should be able to eat some of the crop. And if we've sown spiritual things, we should be able to eat physical things from you. If other people have that right, then we do as well. But nevertheless, we have used none of our rights, and I hope you'll see where I'm going with this, we didn't use the rights we had because we didn't want to put an obstacle in your way so that you might receive the gospel. And I'm asking you to do the same thing when it comes to idol food. Surely you know, if you're serving in the temple, you get your food from the temple. In the same way, Jesus said the people who preach the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But I didn't do that. I didn't use my rights. And I'm not writing these things in order to try and get one, by the way, just so that's clear. I would rather die than have somebody say he's not allowed to boast because he preaches the gospel. If I preach the gospel, that gives me absolutely no basis to boast in anything else. I'm urged to do it. I've got this compulsion. It's like I know I'm going to be under a curse if I don't preach the gospel. I feel so animated by it. So what's my reward? Well, simply that when I preach, I can do it for free so that I can not use all of the rights I have in the gospel. I'm free from everybody, you know that, but I've become a slave to everybody. Um, for the Jews, I've become like a Jew to, in order to win them. And to the people under the law, I've become like I'm under the law to win them. To those outside the law, i become like them to win them. To those, any kind of different person, i become like those people, even though I'm not myself, I'm outside of the law, I, I submit to Christ's law. But I'm always looking to do what I can to become all things to all people, so that somehow, some of them might get saved through what I'm doing and saying. i become weak, i become whatever it might be, everything I do... I do for the gospel so that I might share in their blessings. I'm asking you to do the same. Don't you know, maybe in a race, you have the Isthmian Games, you know, the starting gun goes, everybody pelts it forward and they're all running just so that when they cross that finishing tape, they are rewarded with a wreath. A wreath! 
ivy leaves whirled around their heads with a couple of trees. They're doing it for a wreath. We're not doing it for that. We're doing it for an imperishable crown that will never fade. And so with that stake in the front line, with, that's what the stakes are. I will run as hard as I can. I will beat my body. I will treat it as if it's a slave of mine in order that nothing obstruct me from reaching the prize that I desperately want and so that I don't get disqualified having proclaimed the gospel to everybody else. Because I want you to not miss this point. Israel... They all, all of that generation, the wilderness generation, were under the same cloud. And all of them went through the same baptism, if you like, through the sea, in the Red Sea. And all of them ended up eating spiritual food, manna from heaven. All of them ended up drinking water from the rock. They drank, as you know, the rock which followed them around was Christ. They all experienced those many, many spiritual blessings. And yet God was cross with most of them. And they died and laid to waste in the desert. And that story took place as, example, as an example for us so that we might not think, oh yes, a bit of idolatry please for me. Please, you've got to run away from idolatry and this is why. Don't be idolatrous as some of them were. You know, it says, oh they sat down to drink, they rose up to play, they turn around, yes, have a golden calf, all of those things. They did, they got it, did it at Baal Peor, they did it throughout, they did it just after Sinai for goodness sake and they got destroyed in, as a result. And one day 23,000 of them fell. We mustn't test God either. Some of you are tempted to do that. Let's see where God's patience extends here. Don't do that, because if you do that, you get destroyed by serpents. And some of them grumbled, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And all of those things happened to them as an example, but they've been written down for us, so that we might see, as those upon whom the end of the ages have come, the way we are to live. So if you now think, oh, I'm going to be fine, got nothing to worry about here, watch out. You might fall. Even though I'm saying that, there is nothing facing you now that other people haven't faced before. Don't worry, God is a faithful God and he will provide a way of escape so you don't have to submit to the temptation. But because of all of that, I say, flee idolatry. And I am talking to people who know what they're doing. Judge for yourselves. Isn't it the case that when we drink the cup of blessing, we are participating in Christ's blood? When we share the Lord's Supper, we are communing with Christ himself in his death. Is it not the case that when we break bread, we are participating in his body? There's one bread, and therefore many of us become one body because we all share in that one bread. So if you're not convinced by that, look at Israel. When they eat the sacrifices, they are sharing in the altar. So what am I implying about idol food? Am I saying, oh, idols really exist, or the food itself is contaminated? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, when pagans sacrifice, they are doing it not to God, but they're doing it to idols. They're doing it really to demons. And I don't want you to become partners with demons. So don't use idol food. In a temple context, it's so unwise because in doing it, you are participating in a kind of demonic-like worship and you cannot drink the cup of the Lord on Sunday or Saturday or whatever it was and then head off into the temples on a Wednesday evening and be sitting there having the cup of demons. You cannot eat the bread of the Lord on Sunday and eat the bread of demons on Wednesday. Are we going to stand and make God jealous? Are we somehow stronger than him? All things are lawful. I know, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Yes, I know, but not everything builds up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Please. If you find it in the meat market, I think you should be able to eat it without raising any questions of conscience. The meat itself isn't the problem. The context is the problem. The worship of idols is the problem. But if you're buying the market and you find meat is available and you want to buy it, don't find yourself going, oh, by the way, was this idol food? A lot of it is, but I wouldn't worry about that. The meat is fine because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If you get an unbeliever who invites you around for dinner, similar principle applies. If you want to go, eat whatever they serve. Don't raise questions about conscience. That just makes everybody feel awkward. But if somebody says, oh, by the way, this has been offered in sacrifice... 
then I think you should probably back off from it, not for the sake of your own conscience, I don't know why my conscience should be troubled because someone else has got a problem, but actually for the sake of theirs. It may mean that they are upset by the idea of you thinking that idle food's okay, so if they're worried about it, I would back off. The eating doesn't really matter. Personally, I think if I'm thankful about what I'm eating, I can eat whatever I like. But I would say, more importantly, whatever you do, eating, drinking, anything, do everything to the glory of God and do what you can not to offend Jews or Greeks or the church. That's the way I work as well, as I've been saying at some length now. I'm not looking for my own advantage, but I want lots of people to be saved. And please imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, I am pleased with you in this. You remember me in what you're doing and you keep those traditions that I gave them to you. But I do want you to understand that headship is a thing. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is a husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so therefore, every man who prays or prophesies in a meeting together and does it without his head covered is dishonouring to that head. Surely. And every wife who prays or prophesies in a Christian meeting and she's not got her head covered, she's dishonouring her head. It's kind of as if she was like a temple prostitute with her head not there. Her hair not there. If a wife won't cover her hair, she might as well cut her hair off and that's shameful so she probably, should probably put a covering on uh, as, as everybody else in society would. And a man ought not to cover his head because he kind of reflects the image and glory of God. The woman reflects the image and glory of the husband in that sense and just like Adam and Eve did. And, but actually man wasn't made from woman but woman was made from man and man wasn't created for women but women for man and that's why a wife should wear something that basically indicates the way that that authority works in creation and I guess because of the messengers who come from elsewhere at the same time in the Lord man and woman are not independent don't get if the men in here are then likely to go ah you see I'm in charge no it's not like that you're in you're not independent of each other you both need each other because just as man woman was created from man so now man it comes out of woman and is born by her you're interdependent judge for yourselves does it actually look right in, mod- in the society we live in for a woman to stand there praying for God without a veil covering her hair? Does it actually look right? Doesn't nature show you that a man who stands there with his hair down to here is just dishonouring and a bit disgraceful, but then when a woman has long hair, that's the glory of God? Doesn't it just show you that the- her hair is glorious? It's this beautiful covering given by God. And if anybody wants to have a squabble with me about this, let me just tell you, I don't have any other practice and neither do any of the churches I know. But in the following bit, I am not commending you. Because when you get together for your corporate meetings, they actually do more harm than good. In the first place, when you get together, there's divisions among you. And I believe that, right? There's got to be divisions, otherwise, oh, nobody knows. Are we the recognised ones or are you the burn? Of course you're going to be divided. That goes without saying. And when you come together, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating. You eat, one of them charges ahead to the table and eats everything. And then another person goes hungry, and then another person getting drunk. What are you doing? Don't you have homes? If you want to eat and drink, eat in your houses. Don't come to the church and bring it in here. You are despising the church, and you are oppressing the poor and humiliating them who didn't bring food with them to the kind of Lord's potluck supper, if you like. What shall I say? Shall I commend you in these things? No, I will not, because I was given by the, I was received from the Lord, what I then also gave to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, do it in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you do, you are preaching the death of Christ to the world until the return of Jesus. 
So anybody who eats or drinks the bread or wine in an unworthy manner is profaning the body and blood of Jesus himself. So you should probably look at yourself, take a long hard look into your soul before arriving and snaffling all the food and going and taking a glass and sitting down. You should make sure you examine yourself first. Because if you do that in an unworthy manner, in a way that is not fitting for the body or for what you're about to partake of, then you will actually eat and drink judgment rather than blessing on yourself. That's in my view, that is why a whole bunch of you are even now weak and sick and a few people in the community have died. It's because you've been abusing the Lord's Supper and haven't realised. If you are correct in your self-assessment, you would, you would realise that you would, not, you would not be judged because you'd been right. But actually, even now, even as you're being disciplined, you are facing divine discipline so that you not, might not face condemnation. So, brothers, when you do get together, just wait. Just wait for each other. And if anybody's hungry, eat first, so that when you come together, judgment doesn't fall on you. And I'll tell you about all the other things I've got to say about this when I get there. Spirituals. Oh, spiritual gifts. Let's talk about that. I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. When you were pagans, you used to worship idols. Um, However that happened, but now you'll find that the Spirit of God has come inside you to cause you to say, Jesus is Lord. And if that happens, that's a demonstration the Spirit's at work. And actually, if somebody says Jesus is a curse, that's a demonstration that the Spirit is not at work. Because you can't do that. The Spirit is there, cursing Jesus never happens. Now there are lots of different types of gifts, but there's only one Spirit. There's lots of types of service, there's one Lord, there's lots of types of activity, but one God. And everybody in the church is given an expression and outworking of spiritual giftedness for the benefit of everybody else. Could be wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, languages interpreting language they're all gifts of the one spirit and they're all been given to him to empower each one as the spirit wills it's just like a body right one body lots of different body parts that all have different functions right it's the same thing with christ in one spirit we were all baptized into the same body whether we're jews or greeks whether we're slaves all free people and we were all given the one holy spirit to drink and the body doesn't consist of one member but lots and lots of them and they look very different from each other and so if i was to say oh well, my hand was to go oh well it's such a shame because i'm not a knee and i've always wanted to be a knee and that means i'm not part of the body. you don't even more that doesn't stop you being part of the body it just means hands and knees have different jobs and if you're a foot and go oh i wish i was an eye oh probably I just don't really feel like I'm baby that's what you would do if you were to look at your own gift and think oh it's not as good as theirs similarly eye people don't look at other parts of the body and think ha I'm an eye he is only a foot and as a result is less important than I am my gift much better. no don't think like that at all it's just not like that all of the different gifts you've got some parts of the body that you don't put on public display at all even in Corinth you need to make sure those things are covered up and there's a reason for that maturity indicates that you understand the roles of all you've got parts of the body you don't even know what they're called yet but when they hurt you flip and know about it and that's because all of the body is intended to be an organic whole which means that when one part is aching it affects everything else and when one part is going this is wonderful everybody else is blessed and you just think like that about the church you are the body of Christ that's how that's that analogy applies to the the church as Christ's body and God has put in that church a whole bunch of gifts yeah apostles first and then prophets and then teachers all sorts of other things miracles healing helping administrating lots of languages none of those gifts are possessed by everybody not everybody's an apostle or a prophet or a miracle worker or a teacher or a healer or a language speaker or an interpreter but actually I would say eagerly desire the best gifts but before I talk about that I do want to tell you what's more important than any of them If I speak in human and angelic languages, but I don't have love, I'm like a 
horrible, clashing, grim, get inside your head and annoy everybody kind of noise. And if I've got the most amazing prophetic gift, and I can tell you what's going to happen in nine days' time and 13 days' time, and I can say, oh, that man at the back there, he's wearing this and he's got this problem in his life and his wife's name is whatever, and I don't have love... Even if I've got mountain-moving faith, and I can literally speak and say, get up Mount Olympus and move over there, if I don't have love, I am nothing. I could be the most generous, gifted person in the whole world. I could give up my own body as like a human sacrifice. I could be burnt at the stake, and if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love. Oh, it's so much more important than the gift. Love is, is patient. It's kind. It's not envious and arrogant and boastful and rude. It doesn't say, I must have my way. It doesn't resent things and get irritated easily. It doesn't rejoice when bad things happen. It rejoices with the truth. And it carries all things and believes everything and hopes everything and endures everything. And it never ends. Prophecies will. Right? Languages will. Knowledge will. We know now temporarily. And we prophesy in a kind of limited fashion. But one day, the perfect's going to come. And all of these imperfect perfect gifts you're so obsessed with are going to disappear. When, like when I was a kid, I used to have childlike ways, became an adult, put them behind me. It'll be like that when Jesus returns. I used to think like a child, but now as an adult I don't. And in exactly the same way, the kind of revelation we have now with God is like when you get one of those mirrors and you kind of brassy thing, and you sort of see a shadow of yourself, and you rub it out, and it's sort of a little bit misty, and you can't quite see your own face. Well, that's kind of the way we look at the Lord now. But one day, we're going to see him face to face. The gifts will have gone, but love will remain. And in the meantime, all of these things, these faith and hope and love, they abide. But the best one, by far, is love. So please, pursue love. And earnestly desire the gifts. I'm not saying don't go for the gifts. I actually would say especially desire prophecy. Because the person who speaks in a language doesn't actually talk to other people. They don't understand what he's saying. It might as well be gobbledygook to them. They can't understand. They're speaking to God. But I'd say the one who prophesies speaks to people and they get built up and encouraged and consoled by that. The person who's speaking away in a language, it's nice for him, but the person who's prophesying upbuilds the body. I want all, I'd love it if everybody here spoke in languages, but I'd love it if even more of you prophesied. The one who prophesies, is, is, that's a better gift for the church than the one who speaks in languages, unless, of course, there's an interpretation so that the church might get edified. So, if I come to you, imagine I'd done this. Imagine if instead of preaching Christ the way I did, I'd turn up and just sort of go, that, to be honest, I don't think that would have done an awful lot of good. Imagine if you, and it's like a bit like an instrument. When you hear a bugle, it's supposed to go, it's not supposed to go, and that's kind of what happens when you speak in tongues all the time and there's no interpretation. It's nobody understands what you're saying. I might as well be talking into the air. It's futile. There are lots of different languages, admittedly, in the world, and they all have meaning. But if I don't know what it means, it doesn't do me any good. So you should, in the same way, make sure that you're eager for speech that other people can understand so it builds up the church. So, if you do speak in a language, great, but pray that you might interpret it so that other people understand it. There's another benefit, actually, because if you're praying with your language, you might be away for hours, just disappearing into the heavenlies. But if you're not praying with your mind, your mind isn't doing anything. So what I'll do, pray with the spirit and pray with your mind as well. So you should be able to interpret your languages. I'll sing praise with my spirit, I'll sing with my mind as well. Otherwise, if you're thanking God in your spirit, how could any inquirer, people walk into your meetings, praise God for that. But if they come in, and they come in in the middle of a session when somebody goes, they're just going to think you're all loonies and you don't take and leave of your senses. You might be thanking God, but nobody else has been built up by a single word you said. Personally, I am grateful that I speak in tongues far more than any of you. 
But in a church, I'd rather say five words that made sense than 10,000 words that didn't in another language. Please don't be naive, right? Be children with respect to, be innocent with respect to evil, but in your thinking, you've got to be mature about these things. It actually even says in the Old Testament, doesn't it, that tongue, you know, Isaiah talks about the, the fact that people, Israel will experience judgment by the virtue of the fact that they won't understand the languages that are being spoken. Well, that, in that sense, tongues are a sign of judgment, not on believers, but they're a sign of judgment on unbelievers. Unbelievers don't understand them and they feel excluded by that. Prophecy, on the other hand, is wonderful for unbelievers. So I'd say if the whole church comes together and everybody's speaking in languages, then an outsider comes in, they're going to think you've taken leave of your senses. But if they come in and everyone's prophesying in an orderly, comprehensible way, they will think, wow, these things are true, God is really here, and they'll fall on their face and worship him. So, when you get together in your Sunday meetings... You've got lots of different gifts. Somebody brings a song, somebody brings a teaching, somebody brings prophecy, a language and interpretation. Just make sure that they're all done to build up the church. If somebody speaks in a language, just two or three at most, and make sure there's an interpretation. If, nobody, if there isn't anybody there who can interpret, then just keep quiet. That's okay, the church isn't going to die. Let two or three prophets in the same way speak, and let everybody else weigh what's said. And if while that's happening, a revelation has come to one of the leaders who's sitting down, then let the first person who was speaking be quiet. Because you can do this your orderly way. You can one at a time. Don't think that the prophetic gift runs away without you. No, it's under your control. If you want to stop speaking, you can. God isn't a confusing God. And as in all the churches, that, in that kind of context, wives, please don't use this opportunity to cross-examine your husbands about what they're saying. It is not an edifying experience to be in a church when the guy's prophesying and you just keep asking questions. If you really got questions or challenges to what he's saying, ask them at home because it's really very unedifying and actually quite shameful to have a church with that kind of thing going on in a public meeting. Or was it maybe you guys that invented the gospel? Are you the ones who got it first? Of course not. If anybody thinks you're spiritual or prophetic, you should acknowledge that what I'm telling you actually comes from the Lord. And if someone doesn't recognise that, you shouldn't recognise them. So, um, in summary, eagerly desire prophecy, don't ban tongues, but do everything in a fitting and orderly way. That's really the last three chapters in a nutshell. Now, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And this is what I preached, and you received it, and you're standing in it, and you're being saved by it, assuming, of course, that you continue to hold fast it, unless somehow you believed in vain or something. Because I gave to you, this is the most important thing you will ever hear, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and then was buried in a tomb, and then was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, then appeared to Peter, then appeared to the twelve, then more than 500 other people, a lot of them are still around, and you could ask them about it, even though some of them have died, then he appeared to James, then he appealed to all the apostles together, and then last of all, as to some sort of weird afterbirth guy, coming in, like almost like the placenta after everybody had been born, or some sort of grim thing, he actually appeared to me as well, and I regard myself as the least of the apostles, like right at the last of them but because the, I was the one who persecuted the church but because of God's incredible grace at work in me I actually ended up probably doing more work and in some ways accomplishing more than all the others and the reason I did was not because I did it but because God's grace had effected it somehow within me I worked really hard but only by the grace that is with me anyway whether it was me or the other apostles you heard the gospel and you believed it 
But if Christ has been proclaimed as risen from the dead, the first, if how on earth are some of you standing there saying, well, we don't believe in the future resurrection of the dead. If there's no future resurrection of the dead, then Jesus isn't risen either. And if Jesus isn't risen either, then everything I've preached is in empty and everything you've believed is empty. It's useless. Preaching, your faith, all useless. What are you doing? We've even been founding as if we found to have been representing God as if he'd done something he hadn't. Because we said God raised Christ and you're saying, oh, I'm not sure about the resurrection. That implies God hasn't raised Christ, which means what we said about God is not true. If the dead aren't raised in the future, Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is empty and you're still in your sins, for goodness sake. Then it's even the people who've died in the last few years in your community would be without hope because they had died with no future resurrection in mind. If it's only for this life that we've hoped in Christ, we're the, we're the most pitiful people on the face of the earth. But actually, glory to God, Christ, the Messiah, has been raised from the dead. And not just him, but he was raised from the dead as the first fruits of all of those who've fallen asleep. So he's the one, that the, the crop that bursts through the ground, and you see the life, and you think, aha, the harvest is certainly coming. You never ever get first fruits coming through without a harvest. You know, it's like hearing lightning, and then waiting, you think, thunder's coming, thunder's coming, thunder. it will definitely come, and then boom, out there it comes. It's the same with the resurrection, right? Adam came in, death came, and it affected everybody else. And the same way, by one man, Christ came in, bang, and it affected everybody else. The resurrection of the dead has come through Christ. In Adam, everybody dies. In Christ, all who are in Christ will certainly, just as certainly be made alive but admittedly there's a wait in their own order Christ comes first the first fruits and then after the harvest after the, the growth has come the harvest comes and we get raised the lightning comes first there's a wait and then comes the thunder and then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God the Father having hoovered up and crushed every single one of God's enemies of every rule and authority and power he's going to keep reigning by the way until every last enemy has been hoovered up and put under his boots so that everybody can see that he's Lord of all and the last one the big villain of the peace at the very end is death itself God has put as it says in the Psalms everything under the feet when it says that obviously it's not including God God's the one who put things I hope that's clear from the Psalm doesn't mean God but when all things are subjected to Christ he himself will then come and be subjected to the Father so that God may be all in all and if you don't believe in the future resurrection what on earth are you doing getting baptized for dead people what on earth? What is that about? I heard about that as well. That is a very bizarre practice if you don't think the dead are going to be raised. Similarly, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why do you think I am risking my life all the time? I'm saying, I'm facing death every day. I will tell you that. For, it's always going on. I'm facing suffering. What do I gain if I'm fighting all of these enemies of God in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, we might as well all sit around and go, yes, eat and drink, tomorrow we die, just like Epicurus says. Why wouldn't you live that way? Don't be deceived. If you're in with the wrong people, the character will be wrong as well. Wake up, wake up. You know, like drunk people just just wake up it's true the resurrection will happen I'm saying this please don't keep on sinning there's people who don't know God and I'm saying this to shame you some of you might then say in response well yeah but come on resurrection of the body what come on the dead raised what sort of a body are they going to have you stupid idiot what you sow doesn't come to life until it dies and that means that when you plant a seed it doesn't look like what what grows in the end if I was to show you an acorn you would never deduce the presence of an oak tree you would think there's just going to be a flipping enormous acorn stretching up to the sky but they don't look the same and they look so different from each other that you might even miss that there was a continuity between them as well as a discontinuity it's the same with the resurrection not all things are the same 
same. You plant a seed, you get wheat. You plant a, 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 like a pip and you get a piece of fruit. But they don't look the same. And so you wouldn't necessarily, by looking at this thing, know what the resurrection body would be like. But that's okay. doesn't mean it's not coming. It just means it's going to be different. It's true throughout creation, actually. Bodies are different. Got news for you. Bodies are different. Animals have different bodies from each other. The stars have different bodies from each other. Stars, moon, sun, planets, everything. They just look different. And it's the same with the resurrection. But what is sown is perishable and corruptible and degradable. And it, it, it can be eroded and undone. But what is raised will not be. It will be free from corruption and stain and perishability. And when you sow something like this body, my body's pretty dishonourable. I'm looking forward to getting rid of it. But it will be raised in glory with power that no current, no body. It would be like looking at an acorn and seeing the oak tree. You think, how on earth did that come out of that? That's what you'll do when you see resurrection bodies. It's sown naturally, it'll be raised spiritually. If it's sown naturally, it will be raised spiritually like well the best way of expressing this is probably do you remember Adam would said he was made a living soul but Christ became a life-giving spirit it's that contrast if you are in Adam you die if you are in Christ you get raised alive and just as now we all bear Adam's image so one day we will all bear Christ's image we will have resurrection bodies that do what he did they'll probably appear in the middle of dinner and then they'll eat some fish and then vanish in the thin air and teleport somewhere else and it's that kind of body that you and I are going to have just like we all look like Adam now one day we will all look like Christ I tell you this brothers you cannot get into the kingdom if you're just a fleshly this world kind of body and neither can perishable things take hold of the gloriously imperishable creation that is to come it's impossible and I'll tell you a mystery not every single one of you is going to die not every one of us will die but we will all be changed instantly in a flash in the twinkling of an eye we will hear the last trumpet and every single person will rise imperishable and be changed and every single one of us will put on these new imperishable bodies and go look at this this body's never going to die it's never going to degrade it's never going to go or grow old or fade it's indestructible and when that happens the saying that we've heard back in Isaiah and held on to for all this time will finally come to pass death is swallowed up in victory you're not stinging you're not stinging you're not stinging anymore hallelujah that was what will happen the sting of death is sin the sting of sin is the law but glory to God he has given us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ so please hang in there stay steadfast and abound in God's work because you know that in the Lord what you've done never goes to waste so as I said about the collection I know I told you this before and, and told the church in Galatia the same thing please do the same as, as they did on the first day of the week um, just make sure you put something aside store it up according to your wealth basically so that when I get there I don't have to do a whip round that would be embarrassing when I arrive I'll encourage those who you guys think are worth credit carrying the, the offering to go with the gift to Jerusalem and if it seems you want me to go as well that's fine I can go with them I'll see you hopefully after passing through Macedonia because I'm hoping to do that and maybe spend the winter there and then come to you uh, sorry it's Spend, spend, after the Macedonian visit I'll come to you and spend the winter with you so hopefully you can help me on my journey wherever I'm going I don't want to see you just temporarily I actually want to spend a decent amount of time with you if God allows me to but I will stay in Ephesus until the spring and Pentecost because it's been really fruitful here actually there's a lot of enemies but there's a lot of growth as well so I'm, in the meantime, sending Timothy, when he arrives, can you just make sure he feels settled with you? And you just make, he's, he's doing God's work. Don't, please do not, I know sometimes you're like this, don't look down on the guy. He, just help him on his way, peacefully, so that he might come back to me, because I'm expecting him to join me. Apollos, I know you asked about that. Apollos, at the moment, he doesn't want to come. I did really plead with him, actually. I said, please, would you go? They'd really love to see you. But at the moment, he just really doesn't want to. He will come in time, but just not right now. Be watchful. 
Stand firm. Keep your eyes open. Act like men, not children. Be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. And I now urge you, brothers, please, would you... Would you, you know that the household of Stephanus and all his household, they were the first people in Achaia to get saved. And since then, they have actually devoted themselves to your service. So please, would you subject yourself to them? Would you just submit to them and allow them to, to lead you and to all of his fellow workers and labourers? I rejoice. He came along with Fortunatus and Achaicus, and they have actually made up for your absence. I was missing you, but they really refreshed my spirit, as well as yours, actually. Um, and so I'd ple- please recognise and honour those guys. All the churches in Asia Minor say hi. Aquila and Prissa, of course, they were with you for so long and now they're with me um, and the whole church in the house says we, we love you and they're sending their, all their best greetings all the brothers do actually and please greet one another with a kiss from me I am now going to write this final bit with my own hand I know it's huge but if anybody doesn't have love for the Lord's They are under a curse, but our Lord, please, would you return? And may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love is with all of you in Jesus Christ. Amen. 